Hello, this is Craig Essad and welcome to Hearth Talk. Today we're going to speak with Stephen Morris, former sales and marketing director at Vermont Castings, about the changes that occurred in that company with the purchase of Consolidated Dutch West, approximately 1990 to 1991. Thanks for listening. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing today? Hi, Craig. I'm doing fine. Uh, Stephen, I wanted to call you and try to dig up a little more of the history on Vermont Castings, uh, knowing you were one of the original management employees at, at Vermont Castings, and, and I should say one of the uh, longest-serving uh, management employees at, at, at Vermont Castings. Uh, what years exactly did you work uh, from and to at Vermont Castings? I was hired right at the tail end of 1978, and I was with them uh, through 1991. Wow, 13 years. That, 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 you should have got a plaque, but I'm sure you didn't. I got a clock. <laughs> Does it say, is it cast? The clock broke rather soon. Is it cast? No, no. <laughs> I think it was made of plastic. A plastic clock from Vermont Castings. They should be ashamed of themselves. Well, you were there then really through, uh, through most of the formulative years, the growing years, uh, the years transitioning to, uh, to the clean burning EPA uh, stove so so I think you have uh, somewhere buried deep in your memory uh, uh, a lot of the uh, lessons to be learned and stories from Vermont castings I was definitely an observer for uh, all of those events you you mentioned well you know just for the benefit of our readers I should mention that I was a Vermont castings dealer during a lot of these happenings at Vermont castings and of course I saw them uh, from a once or twice removed perspective our store started selling Vermont castings, I think, around 1984. And Stephen, you were the manager of dealer sales, or what was what was your exact position there? Oh, I went through a number of uh, titles. I was originally hired as the customer service manager, and that's when we were selling uh, almost exclusively direct to consumers. Then, uh, uh, as we started making the transition to dealers, uh, I think I was uh, manager of dealer sales, and that eventually became sales manager, and that became sales and marketing manager, and many other titles uh, followed. Eventually, I became vice president of sales and marketing. Okay. Yes, I know that we. I know that you were our uh, not our first line contact, but. Uh, uh, when we uh, went to dealer meetings and things, and uh, you were the one that spoke about how uh, you were going to give us more good product to sell and how we were going to make more money and how you were going to take us to Club Med and how you were going to do all that kind of stuff, right? I came through with all those promises, didn't I? I, I should say. You, you actually, uh, the marriage was good, and marriage being a word that Vermont Castings had made up uh, back in those days to describe the, uh, the relationship with the dealers. Uh, well, today, what always interested me, and, and I have never heard the whole story, um, was how Vermont Castings came to purchase uh, Consolidated Dutch West. And, and uh, for the benefit of our listeners, Consolidated Dutch West was a I hate to say a competitor stove company because at the time Vermont Castings was 
by any measure the Cadillac or the Mercedes uh, or whatever word you want to use to say the uh, top of the line brand in the wood-burning world and Dutch West was known as uh, perhaps the worst stove or uh, you know at least to dealers maybe Vermont Castings didn't know this it was known as a extremely low quality stove the first stoves having been made I think in India and then them them moving to uh, to certain manufacturing in Taiwan and, and you know back at that time in Taiwan the early 80s uh, the Asian foundries were not known for their quality. So uh, as a dealer, we, we found it surprising when this purchase occurred. So uh, today I want to get into the hows, whens, and wheres of, of this purchase. Okay. When did Vermont Castings start looking around for an acquisition, or were they always looking around for an acquisition? Or, or I should say, when, to your knowledge, did did Consolidate Dutch West hit the radar screen at Vermont Castings? Well, the roots of this story are really in the uh, early 1980s when uh, uh, Vermont Casting stoves were first uh, knocked off. We started seeing uh, imitations from the Pacific Rim appearing in uh, uh, mostly discount stores. And uh, the company launched a lawsuit against the, uh, the importer of these uh, stoves and they were terrible quality. It was a very long hard fight that Vermont Castings did finally uh, win in a lawsuit in Vermont and won an award of something like 18 million dollars which of course they never collected a, a red cent of but it did get those uh, imitations off the market and it protected the integrity of the design. It uh, was a fight that uh, took a terrible toll on the uh, uh, the owners of the company though and uh, things were never quite as the same after that very soon thereafter Murray Howell was diagnosed with cancer and you know, that became the first of a number of dramatic uh, incidents that uh, the company was involved with so when Consolidated Dutch West came on the scene uh, I think there was a, a, a large residue of fear there on the part of the, the top management that, uh-oh, here we go again. And uh, uh, Consolidated Dutch West did not look exactly like Vermont Castings, but there was no doubt that they were trying to move into what was perceived as a void that Vermont Castings left behind in the direct marketing arena. So they, they registered the company, not in Randolph, Vermont, but Randolph, Massachusetts, and they adopted typefaces and everything on their uh, uh, advertising to look just like Vermont Castings and they very aggressively started selling direct in the marketplace and it, it's true there was a void there because by this time we had completely made the transition to a dealer based network. I remember looking at these stoves because of course everybody got the catalog and you know owning a store at the time you know people would come in once in a while with it but you know we looked at these stoves and we said boy you know we couldn't we couldn't design something uglier if we tried a square box with you know tiny windows uh you know with a pebbled finish on it to hide uh, you know any defects in the casting and um you know whether the story was exactly correct or not uh the idea that we we had was that this was a stove that you know cost ninety nine dollars uh you know, FOB Taiwan or less, and they, they spent uh, $300 in in the catalog. Uh, you know, they had this beautiful glossy catalog that, you know, even though 
to some people, the catalog may have made it look good to, to somebody who was used to seeing Vermont castings and Yodel and stoves like that. You know, we, we still looked at this and said, you know, we could, we could see through the sales hype, but um, obviously not everybody at Vermont Castings was able to do this. It was a, uh, a testament to the power of marketing. Uh, and then uh, Consolidated Dutch West started opening up factory stores, too, following a model that had been established by Troy-built rototillers. And uh, the dealers uh, became very fearful in their marketplaces because they, they knew that customers were coming in and comparing Vermont castings to the lower-priced Consolidated Dutch West. They knew that there was a lot of volume going on in their markets, so they were they were in turn putting uh, pressure on Vermont castings to uh, take some sort of action. That's interesting because, you know, this shows a, um, a bit of, of, you know, they say sometimes, you know, you have to listen to your customers, but, you know, sometimes don't listen too closely because here we were in, in the Philadelphia area where our store was, and when I say that Dutch West was not even, you know, on our radar screen. I mean, the the one out of fifty or a hundred customers that might have mentioned it. I mean, we had we just we you know we sort of laughed, and you know, one of my salespeople came up with some kind of joke about it cracking like an egg. You know, the first time you burn it, you know, wasn't true probably, but uh, you know, it was just it, it it was actually a standing joke. But but maybe being up in New England, you know, you had your New England dealers around you, and and like you say, they were. Um, they were trying to fool people with the Randolph and with the stores and, and with things like that. But, uh, but, it, but it must have came registered higher on the radar up, up in the Northeast uh, than it did down our way, because I can assure you that it, down our way, and I assume in a lot of other areas of the country, um, it, it, it didn't register as highly. Uh, there's definitely a regional bias to uh, their, their market strength. But I think they also did something uh, pretty interesting when they uh, came out with this design for a, what was supposed to be a West Coast contemporary stove called the Sequoia. And again, uh, using the terms of warfare, I, I think for my casting thought, maybe it was getting outflanked by Consolidated Dutch West. A typical uh, story of, of you know, what I might call business obsession, taking your eye off of what you're doing and looking too hard at what other people are doing. I mean, you do have to, to figure it in, but I guess it's uh, in the equation how, how you weigh things, uh, you know, against, against your own. So, um, okay, so Vermont Castings had, had, had a lot of fear on the radar, and it sounds like the fear was very specific in this case. It was specific directed towards Dutch West, or it was directed towards the whole market as a whole and looking at, at, at the parts of it you weren't getting? Well, the, uh, keep in mind that the, the stove business overall was quite flat at this time. And so uh, things like market share become a, a much more important item. I do think that the, uh, the fear was uh, more in the minds of upper management than it was uh, in the, the rank and file or the dealer network. So you might remember at that time we had a lot of trainings that were designed to sell your strength and uh, really focus on the benefits uh, point by point of Vermont Castings versus Consolidated Dutch West. And that, uh, that training was quite effective. Yeah, I know. Uh, as I said, we, we virtually never, never had a problem, uh, you know, selling against 
against that. Not, not like the problems we had in the early days selling against you when Vermont Castings was direct marketing and you know we had every other customer coming in our store saying I'm looking at those Vermont casting stoves from Vermont you know <laughs> that was that was a little harder to sell against. Right but I, that experience and the fact that you did that successfully for a while eventually made you uh, a much more effective uh, sales force when Consolidated Dutch West came along. Uh, tempered by fire, as they say. That's the term. Well, you know, right around this time, myself, I had gone on to a, a few things other than retailing. I had purchased a little cast iron stove company in 1985 called Upland Stove Company. And I remember at the Wood Heat Show, it had to be 1985 or 1986, it was in Louisville, uh, Kentucky, as I remember. I displayed Upland there, and I still have a picture somewhere in my archives of me with a suit on, actually, standing in front of some Uplands. And at the time, I shared the booth with some friends of mine who had started a new stove company called Avalon. And we had, so we got two booths together because we got a better price or something, and, and we showed both stoves there. And, and both of us were uh, very, very small companies, myself with Upland, I was to the point where I was, uh, this might have been 1986, come to think of it. I was to the point where I was thinking of selling the company uh, because the, the EPA was on the horizon and I thought I, I don't want to necessarily uh, invest more money in this. And my friends at Avalon were also having some financial problems because they had a, a large distributor that bought a number of truckloads and didn't pay them. And I do remember going down and seeing you at the Vermont Castings booth. I, I, I must have heard somewhere that Vermont Castings is looking for, uh, you know, purchasing uh, some other stove companies, you know, maybe to fill in their brands. And I brought you down to the booth and I said, Stephen, you know, you should buy these two companies, uh, Upland and Avalon at the time. And uh, some, sometimes I can't help but think uh, how history would have changed if you would have bought Avalon and Upland. Um, at the time, you invited me up to Vermont to present to these uh, upper management uh, people you know, the idea of, of Upland Stove Company, which I did. I stopped by and said hello to you, and then you brought me in to see some of these bigwigs, and I presented it uh, at the time, and uh, I guess I guess they didn't buy it. No, but uh, uh, you sold me on it. <laughs> there was a, a, a real uh, division in the company at uh, that time because, as I mentioned, the overall stove business was flat, and we had grown uh, continuously throughout the early 1980s, by uh, gaining market share and uh, com opening up our dealer network. But uh, within the company, part of the, uh, there was an obvious need for us to diversify. And some in upper management wanted a complete diversification. And uh, I don't know if you remember, there were, we went pretty far down the line in terms of acquiring a hot tub company. Uh, other factions wanted uh, patio furniture. Other factions wanted to uh, do jobbing business in the, the foundry. Uh, I personally was an advocate of diversifying within the hearth business and taking advantage of this great dealer network to give them more product to sell. So the idea of a lower cost product like uh, an upland stove made sense to me and the idea of a uh, Avalon type steel stove made great sense to me too, especially because they could be acquired at a very advantageous price. Well, it should be noted that, that this is finally what things have somewhat come around to now, you know, how many years later, 
uh, 20 years later because, you know, uh, CFM Majestic uh, finally design, redesigned the Dutch West two or three or four times from scratch, and then they also make some steel stoves under the Dutch West name and under the, the Century name, but, yeah, they would have been 20 years and who knows how many tens of millions of dollars ahead of the game. So, um, so, so maybe now you can tell us what led to the decision uh, to purchase uh, Dutch West and and how you were informed of it and how the the, the initial purchase took place. Okay, you're you'll be getting a one-sided perspective here um, because um, I think I can speak fairly well for the uh, the, the dealers and the the sales force, but the uh, the negotiations for this were really carried on by a, a very small group of upper management. And you know, my feeling on it was we were. Not only holding our own, but we once we started taking the gloves off and started targeting uh, Dutch West with some of uh, our sales techniques and advertising, I think we we really started hurting them. And uh, they uh, the initial blush of success they had had from direct marketing was getting harder and harder to do, and they were actually uh, uh, extending themselves beyond the natural marketplace by opening up these these retail stores. So. Uh, you know, my position when I was consulted on this was, no, we're we're doing just fine in the marketplace. And by acquiring Dutch West, we're effectively acquiring ourselves, since they're so strongly imitative of Vermont castings. The, the mindset uh, from uh, the upper management and the investment banking community who put together this acquisition was entirely different. And so it... Uh, it's something I don't have direct insight into. I will tell you it happened faster than I anticipated and with uh, far less input from the field that, than I would have liked to have seen. You know, it sounds like in, in terms of, of the fight, you had the opponent on the ground with your, uh, you know, foot on its neck and then you decided to let it up and, and, and pay it <laughs> or something of that nature. Certainly uh, after the acquisition was made, we could see that Consolidated Dutch West would not have been around much longer. Uh, they had filled the pipeline, they had overextended themselves, and uh, unfortunately, Vermont Castings came in and acquired them at a premium price at just the wrong time. And speaking of the price, what was the price? You know, I, I don't remember. The, the figure $24 million sticks in my mind. I think I remember twelve million, but you know none of it. I don't know that any of it was very public. But but whatever it was back, especially given back in those days, and and uh, it was a, it was a tremendous amount of money, more than uh, more than Vermont Castings either had, or maybe as much as they were worth, or or something in that nature. Correct. Correct. Uh, so so what happened? You come into work one morning, uh, that type of thing, and and they say. The deal is is made. Just about it. Uh, it happened, like I say, very quickly. It was uh, a, a, a group of the current ownership, you know, Duncan Syme and Ed Abring, the president, the chief financial officer Jerry Solomon, the company lawyer uh, whose name is Dick Floor, and an, an investment banker named Murray Banks, who were largely the architects of the deal. Okay, and then this was part of your job was, of course, uh, announcing it uh, to the dealers once, you know, I remember you 
doing that in a couple different uh, speeches. But uh, one either speech or quote that I remember uh, was from Duncan himself. And he said something about, uh, if this deal doesn't work out, he'll be pumping gas. Do you remember remember that particular I choice of words? I remember it uh, <laughs> very vividly because uh, we had one of the, the things we had put together for our uh, dealers was an incentive trip to Ireland. And uh, our dealers uh, responded very, very positively to these travel incentives. And we took a contingent of, I think, about 350 people over to Ireland. And I think it was the largest uh, group that had ever traveled to the country. And there we held some dealer training sessions, which uh, were designed to uh, explain the, the merger and tell dealers how things would unfold. And that's where Duncan made his uh, pumping gas speech. Oh, so he actually made that in Ireland? Yep. Wow. Um, yeah, because I remember I heard those words, but I didn't hear them in person because I had, I had actually won that trip, but I had awarded it to uh, one of my salespeople or one of my installers and, and a member or two of his family went over there. So I didn't get to, to hear those famous words. And, and, and without giving away uh, some of the end of this story, um, as a result of this uh, whole situation, uh, Duncan did end up having to walk away from the company with uh, no money, very little money, or one dollar. Which of the above? I, I I don't know the answer to that. Okay, but I think it was a uh, it was about one dollar if I if I remember it was a, it was nothing. I think. Well, yeah. it was a, a very sad situation because the same investment company that had put together this this merger pulled the plug on it about 30 days after it was complete. And suddenly, uh, Vermont Castings was a very highly leveraged company, having just acquired uh, an, a company of dubious value and uh, needing to put together a, uh, a battle plan for uh, the repayment of the debt. Okay, so this is a part of it I never heard. So you're saying that uh, independent of of exactly what went down with Dutch West, uh, you know, in the in the in the many months afterwards, you're saying something occurred in the first month or two after um, after the company was bought that that deeply affected what was to happen after that. Correct. Could you tell me just a little bit about that? Well, again, you know, I'm not. I was neither in top management nor on the financial side there. But uh, the way it was always explained was that the uh, company that had put together the financing for the deal had uh, had then called the uh, the total amount due in a very short period of time. Do you think they found something out from uh, you know perhaps the, uh, the consultants or whoever that actually went over and inspected what you bought or or what you bought? came over here and they just got an inkling that something was up and decided to, to bail? I don't have any uh, information to that effect, but uh, don't forget this was a time in the late 80s when there was an awful lot of uh, highly leveraged buyouts going on and a lot of them were being financed by uh, banks that had international ties and so uh, decisions could be made that were affected by the, uh, the, the currency rates in Argentina that could have impact on uh, deals in the United States. And I think that uh, our feeling was always that uh, it was financial decisions that completely uh, changed the playing field that were completely beyond the company's ability to control. 
Okay, so yeah, if the, if the company was very well financed, that you might have been able to absorb this uh, this tremendous uh, shock, we'll say that. Uh, but but now you were working with your own money in terms of uh, trying to integrate this this company. Correct. Uh, well, let's get to sort of the meat of the matter. Uh, at least what came from a from a dealer perspective is is that we were led to believe, you know, through the uh, the grapevine, uh, whisper down the lane, or whatever, that Vermont Castings uh, was was sold a bill of goods to to put it short and sweet in terms of this company and what they were sold. Not only in terms of what you said about them them peaking and and having gone down, but that that somehow when, when it came time to actually look at what they bought, to actually either send the people over there or to send the stuff over here and look at it, that they, they ended up with much less than they, they thought they bought. Were you either involved in any, in any of this in terms of uh, finding out about this and, and, and hearing anything from the inside that could enlighten us? Well, I think what you say is a, a fair statement, and in fact, I was involved in going out and having to close down the company stores and their headquarters and liquidating the inventory, and you know what a, a messy situation that that can be. And suddenly, your inventory that's valued at a uh, hundred uh, a million dollars is bringing sixty thousand dollars at uh, liquidation, but. Uh, Although that's that's part of the story, and it's the only visible part to the to the dealers, I really think it was the financial side that was the the more significant factor. Had uh, business continued and at a robust pace, and the, the original financing stayed in place, uh, I think Vermont Castings could have just folded, closed the doors of Consolidated Dutch West, and come out a winner on the deal. So but, if they, it's sort of like the uh, current. Uh mortgage uh, mess if 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 they weren't forced to uh quote pay the higher rates and pay now uh they might have just been able to make the monthly payments if it continued along exactly oh well that's interesting because that's the first time i'm i'm hearing the, the the financial aspect of it from the from the dealer end uh all we got was that that this thing was um was such a weight around their neck that well which is obviously true from what you say uh, we had a, a very strong vested interest in putting the best face forward to the dealers because that was a part of the, the company that was not broken at all. And uh, so we obviously didn't want to upset them. So, you know, the company's uh, financial situation wasn't going to be shared with the dealers. Right, right. I guess the, the dealers finally came around to it when, when we heard that Duncan had left the company. Well, you know. Ed Abrain uh, was forced out as president. We went through a series of uh, kind of temporary hired guns who were brought in. Uh, but I think that when Duncan left the company was uh, certainly the the most dramatic and most uh, symbolic uh, end to an era that could have uh, happened. And and did you feel a change at the company? Uh, you know, besides the the symbolism of that, was uh, would you consider that to be a, a major turning point in the way the company, you know, both thought of itself and and was and operated inside? Definitely. I mean, I think that we all looked at Duncan as being the uh, the heart and soul of the company, and certainly sort of our our spiritual leader, even though he was a a, a, a whimsical crazy guy in, in a lot of different ways. Vermont Castings wouldn't have been the company it was without uh, 
Duncan's influence. Well, that, that's yeah. That that seems from afar to be the case. Uh, uh, I might want to refer our listeners uh, on the web to go to Google and uh, type in an article called "Keeper of the Flame." It's an, a magazine uh, article from Inc. Magazine that's still online today uh, from 1989, which describes Duncan, uh, one of the founders of Vermont Catholics. Duncan Syme, is that how you pronounce his, his last name? Syme. Duncan Syme. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it's an extensive article talking about the founding of Vermont Castings and, most important, about Duncan and his quest for quality and uh, his high standards that he's setting you know, at the time and from the beginning in terms of the product being uh, above everything. And, and I guess that, that, that the article probably found the heart and soul of Vermont Castings when, when it quoted him in saying, the product is everything. Well, Duncan really, uh, in addition to the product, which he deserves great credit for, uh, he created the company culture. And then I would say that my role was to extend the company culture outside the company walls to the dealer network. And I think the fact that uh, we had such a a loyal contingent of dealers was uh, testament to the fact of how strong that culture was. Well, if I may say, I think you did a good job, and I mean, all of you did a good job, because although it's no money in your pocket, uh, it is amazing that here, you know, 20 years almost after all that occurred, the company still has goodwill, you know, although they've done not too much in the time since to to further it in the same way that, you know, Duncan and you and all the uh, the original insiders did. So whatever you got going uh, was was something that that uh, was very real and that, you know, in the way of the business culture, a lot of the people who have taken over, the companies that have taken over Vermont Casting since, have spent their time and energy trying to, I'll use the word milk that, <laughs> trying to uh, take uh, maximum advantage of the, uh, the brand name that you guys established. Yeah, it's, it's something that uh, is very, very difficult to recapture, but uh, the fact that uh, it still has some momentum in the marketplace is a testament to how powerful it was. Well, you know, one other interesting quote from that article that we picked up on even as dealers back then, but today from a business perspective, uh, you know, may have a little interest also. Besides, the product is everything. Uh, There was a quote in there that we sort of laughed at as dealers because we thought it was incorrect and and in some ways time has proven it to be incorrect. And and it was a quote from Duncan and it it was specifically this, marketing schmarketing. And I don't know if you've ever heard that before in terms of those words, but what Duncan was saying was, you know, that that marketing doesn't matter. And I would hope that's something that that both you and I have have learned back then and since and what perhaps Duncan should have learned uh, because uh, it sounds like he got marketed a bill of goods to buy Dutch West himself. Uh, It's I think what you're saying is right. Yeah, I mean, that, you can see how that quote is a little bit ironic in an article that occurred right about at the same time that, uh, you know, that, that he was being marketed himself by a, by a fancy catalog. Well, anyway, Stephen, I, I thank you today for uh, giving us some insights into the uh, acquisition of, of Dutch West and, and some of the earlier history of Vermont Castings. Well, I hope it was helpful. It was uh, kind of fun going down uh, memory lane here, but... Uh, these weren't uh, the, the happiest times of the Vermont Casting's memory. Well, like you said, uh, through fire we will become tempered. Right. Hey, 
Thanks for listening to Hearth Talk today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. See you next time.